hidden behind closed doors. This is Beer and Movies. I'm Jason. I'm Michael. Jason, what are we talking about today? Today, we're going to discuss Out of the Pass, 1947, RKO. Michael, what are we drinking? Today, we're drinking Hopsmith Imperial IPA from Potosi, Wisconsin. Cheers. Cheers. It's a little brewery in the southwest corner of Wisconsin. I chose it because this brewery was built in the mid-1800s. It closed down in the 70s, I believe, and it sort of went derelict. I went there in the 90s. It was just like this crumbling ruins of a building, probably a little dangerous to be like, crawling around in it. And they sunk several million dollars into a restoration in the early 2000s and built this beautiful facility. It's like you've seen pictures of it. The pictures are it, amazing. It's gorgeous. It's in a, it's kind of in a, like a cool little valley. So when they get heavy rains, the street will flood. There's a, a spring that comes out of a bluff behind the brewery, runs under the brewery. They use the water from the spring to make the beer. And when you go into the restaurant, they have a little viewing in the floor. There's a viewing window where you can actually see the spring water. So it's out of the past. And I've wanted to put something from this brewery on. And I've wanted to do this movie. Love this movie. What do you think of the beer? It's a hoppy taste. It's an Imperial IPA. <laughs> it's, it's an Imperial IPA for sure. I get big mango on the nose. It's right off the bat. It's hoppy. There's a little bitterness at the end. There's a nice malt balance. I mean, I think it's super drinkable. It's a little To me, it's a little scary because it is over 9%. Yeah. For 9.1%, it's mellow. It has a hoppy bite. That, again. Not, yeah, and I know. I know some people don't like the hoppiness of IPA. I actually like that taste. As, as we like to say, you could get over your skis on this one. I mean, you really can. Full disclosure, I actually have. Just because I was like, oh, this is so good. I was back home. You know, you're on vacation. You're having a good time. The next thing you know, you're like, oh, that was a bad idea. I need to go to sleep now. This beer, all profits to charity. If you're in that part of the country, I think it's it's a great destination. Wisconsin is just a hidden gem. Potosi, Wisconsin is where beer is crafted and the craft is celebrated at the National Brewery Museum. The beer you hold was brewed in that town by its fine people in a small batch with the finest ingredients. We are Potosi. We are beer's hometown. So National Brewery Museum. It's a cool little spot. They've got a lot of neat things. The pictures were fantastic that you sent. They're on our Instagram if you want to check it out. I always hit this spot and I did a post on it. They got a lot of great old breweriana, as they call it, signs and artifacts. I'm a huge fan of this one. This is I, good. I was going through several different, what am I going to bring back? And this was the one I landed on. And I think it was a good choice. As I also think, out of the past. Michael, you chose this movie. I certainly so, did. So why is it a B-movie? It's a B-movie. First of all, RKO made it. <laughs> and I don't know if you could actually make an argument that RKO made a non-B-movie. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Also, it's film noir. And film noir is almost 100% a B-movie. Anytime you see a list, somebody making a list of the 10 best film noir films. Films noir is the technical term. This is going to be on there. Usually in the top five, some people will put it as the greatest film noir of all time. That's subjective. Nicholas Musaraka did the, was the director of photography. I think, I think we figured out, as of now, 
This is the third or fourth Nicholas Musarakov shot film that we've done. This man is credited with being one of the most important cinematographers, but also for film noir. I mean, that, what more can you say? It's a crime film, and it takes place in the world of crime, which film noir is pretty much exclusive. Your point of view is going not going to be from the police. It's going to be from the underworld. It's, it's got Robert Mitchum. It's got Jane Greer as one of the nastiest characters you'll ever find. Kirk Douglas is just oily and menacing. Perfect term, <laughs> menacing. <laughs> I mean, he's smiling the whole time, and you're just like, yikes. I love it. It's one of my favorite movies. I've been really waiting to like pull. I think we both have movies that that were like we're gonna pull these out at some point. <laughs> and this, I'm gonna you know at some point I'm just gonna get into all these film noir. What was your take? Well, how'd you like it? I had not seen it before. Watch it now four or five times. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Movie. I could see why that it's considered one of the best, if not the quintessential film noir. It completely depresses me. It makes me very sad to watch this movie every time. I felt so bad when you told me that. <laughs> I, I just, I, I'm like inside. I just died a little because I, I thought, oh no, I just put him through that. And every time I watch it, it makes things worse. Like I'm like, oh man. I mean, it's about this fatalistic component of film noir where the hero, the protagonist, realizes I'm in a frame. This is my path. I'm gonna choose. Film noir is not about happy endings. Exactly, and this does <laughs> this does not have a happy ending point out that the director and i'm not going to pronounce his french name i'm going to pronounce his american anglicized name jack turner he worked with val luton on all those b horror movies leopard man and cat people which is another sign it's like a b movie i think you questioned me at first because you said this had a a large budget for rko and and i said rko's (laughs) big budget isn't that much and i stand by it this is a b movie Again, we keep saying B doesn't mean bad. Exactly. This movie is beautifully shot. It's got Robert Mitchum. Exactly. It's got Robert friggin' Mitchum. Robert (laughs) Mitchum is... Cheers to Robert Mitchum. Cheers. Robert Mitchum is probably one of the only people who can come close to our love of Tim Thomerson. Yes. (laughs) Because Robert Mitchum, he's one of my like historical drinking buddy dreams. Like I would go back in time. Just to go belly up to a bar with Robert Mitchum. Well, after watching (laughs) The Locket and now watching this... I've put on my library list, I use Libby. I'm waiting for his biography so I could read it. And number two, I went back and watched a interview with him and Dick Cavett from the early 1970s. Which is awesome. That's a, that stuff's great. I think right now, just got to say, spoiler alert. In our podcast, we will discuss this movie in depth. If you don't want to know what's going to happen, go and watch the movie, then turn our podcast back on. Seriously, both things. I, I highly recommend both things. Watch this movie. When this thing opens, it opens on this wide, expansive shot of northeastern It's the California. eastern Sierras, northern yeah. California, Bridgeport it's area. Outdoor, it looks more like a shot you would see in a western. Film noir is always the enclosed, dark spaces of the city. Right off the bat, it's not your typical film noir. And then we go into this fantastic shot with a camera in the back seat of a car. You see the driver, and he's wearing all dark, dark hat, dark coat, pulling into, into town. Pulls into Bridgeport, California. It's up there in the Eastern Sierras. Someone has tracked down all these locations from those movies. They still stand. That courthouse is still there. And it's interesting because it opens up with this expansive cinematic view of this vast scenery. And it ends with a very narrow view down a street. Nicholas Musaraka did that on purpose, I believe. 
And Joe, the driver of this car, pulls into this town because he's seen something. He certainly did. Just from the get-go. He pulls up to a gas station. There's there's a kid in his early teens, I'm thinking, like yeah. 15 or so. Maybe. And he's just referred to as the kid. He's deaf and he's mute. Joe, he wants to get some information from the kid. And he ends up having to go over and like, oh, you're dumb and mute. Horrible thing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not terribly nice. Joe is 100% film noir. He's in this rural town, but he's got the long trench coat, black trench coat. Yeah got a black hat what we see in this movie the city folk wear long coats and hats always the rural folk wear short coats and maybe maybe a hat maybe not so he's wants to get some information about the gasoline station owner that bailey works for jeff bailey one thing i want to note the kid's pretty observant because police car drives by and joe he takes note yep there's a cop car and the kid you can see files that away this guy's looking at a cop car, and he's sort of... Uh, Pauses the conversation. Exactly. Until Joe goes across the street to Marnie's Cafe, yeah. and Marnie is having a conversation with a guy named Jim, who's going to be an important figure. But the repartee, this back-and-forth dialogue, everybody's got, like, the coolest line. Everybody talks like you want to talk, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's very much movie dialogue that you think is excellent, and that's how you aspire to want to have your dialing and talk. But of course, it's all planned out before. And like, no one speaks that witty, the barbs back and forth. But I would give, I would give a finger (laughs) to like, because everybody's got like a really cool line. And and I want to point out too, the kid is played by Dickie Moore. Dickie Moore was a child actor. He's one of these actors who, at the point in time after his childhood, he was still he basically stopped acting, transitioned out at the end of the fifties, I believe. But he was involved in Hollywood, and I think in one of the unions. And he ended up writing a book where he interviewed thirty children actors. Joe, played by Paul Valentine, he's great. He's he's absolutely fantastic. I, I was like, why have I not seen this man more? I looked at his IMDb page, and he he did work, but it's not a massive amount of work. His delivery, his acting, he's I think is inc- exceptional. He's incredible. I'm with you 100%. Watching this again for this episode, I hadn't watched the film in over 15 years. Paul Valentine's just great. I don't know what happened. It sounded like he did work, yeah. but I'm, that should have just catapulted him yeah. to like getting tons of lead roles. He had a good look. He had a great delivery. He was that character. And you liked him, but you knew that he was the bad guy. You knew that he was the opposite these guys so oily. They're so oily. He'll say the nice thing, and you just know it's a mean thing. <laughs> Joe's in Marnie's Cafe. He hears a dialogue. Clearly, Jeff Bailey. Talk about this Bailey fella. <laughs> by a woman named Marnie. And this is where I point out where I think there's layers in this movie. And I don't always want to point out like, oh, there's deeper meaning. When Joe's driving down that road, the cafe is called... Anne's Grill. When he's at the gas station and looks over, it's called Marnie's Cafe. At the end of the movie, when you're seeing the end, it's once again Anne's Grill. Now, Anne ends up being Jeff Bailey's girlfriend. His good love interest. Love interest. Marnie, the cafe owner, in this scene is talking with Jim. You don't think this is just a mistake? No, it's, I don't think, because even Jim says, I always picture you with blonde hair. Is what Anne has blonde hair. So there's something weird. There's a lot of double characters. Like we're in, in this. the future. We're in the past. We're in the future. There's a time. Are you trying to say this is a time travel? No, thing? I'm not. Tra- 
<laughs> I'm saying that he used this idea of doubles a lot in this movie. In fact, when Jim says, I always picture you as a blonde, which is what Anne's hair color is, when he's saying, when Jim's saying that to Marnie in this cafe, there, there seems to be a lot of people who are doubles or opposites in this movie. Anyway, Joe gets his information. He's waiting for Bailey. The kid, meanwhile, we cut to, we meet Jeff and Anne, and they're fishing. Pretty little area. I would love to be there. And probably they go out there every day for lunch. He's a mystery to her. She doesn't know, like, what's going on. You don't tell me about yourself. And then the kid shows up. He signs to Bailey. And he gets up, and he pulls out a cigarette, and he goes, I, I gotta go. Uh, and Anne's like, what's that? He's like, oh, a guy wants to see me. And she goes, well, I'll light that cigarette for you, which is just the first of many if you're a former smoker, this is going to be a problematic movie for you. Because, I mean, all the movies back then, there was so, so much smoking. But boy, oh boy. I, I mean, there I... There is I, some smoking going... As, as an ex-smoker, this this one is a tough one. It is. Because it's a... Don't start that habit. Because it is so much easier to start than to stop. Exactly. <laughs> and this movie... Oh. I, I, when I watched it the first time, I haven't touched a cigarette in a decade. Watching this movie... I wanted to go back and count, like, how many cigarettes do they really smoke in the movie? There's smoke everywhere. And Nicholas Musaraka, he captures that smoke coming out of their mouth. Like, he'll put something behind it so you see that smoke. It's outstanding. It's everywhere. It's and just, I'm thinking, it has to smell amazing, like smoke everywhere. Just amazing. My man crush on Robert Mitchum. Nobody looks cooler smoking. <laughs> I, I gotta be honest. He makes smoking look really cool. Just want to be like, ah, I want to wear a hat and smoke and drink bourbon. Like, that's all I want to do. <laughs> and it seems like a pretty good gig. <laughs> Jeff goes back to Bridgeport and he meets Joe at his gas station. And Joe's like, oh, nice. You're kind of, like, he's not that thrilled to see Joe. Joe's like, hey, I still work for that guy. And he's real concerned about how far can that kid read lips. Jeff is, is not thrilled. He's not happy about this. And Joe has a great line. He says, you're going to meet him. He's up at Lake Tahoe. I looked it up. It's like 85 miles yep. from Bridgeport. You're going to meet the guy. You won't miss it. You can't. It's a very, very subtle, veiled threat. You're going to be here at Lake Tahoe. And he leaves. And directly after that, Jeff, the next time we see him, he's not in a short jacket anymore. He's wearing a trench coat and, and a, a fedora. fedora. He's back in the uniform of film noir. City. He's a city <laughs> fellow now. And he asks Anne, who trusts him implicitly, I need you to drive me to Tahoe. So what happens is that they're drive to Tahoe, this 85-mile route. We get a three-year flashback, and we get Jeff's history. His real name is not Jeff Bailey. It's Jeff Markham. And so we get the flashback. You got a sleazy partner. Jack Fisher, played by Steve Brody. They're private eyes in New York. They've been hired by Kirk Douglas, Whit Sterling. To find this woman, Kathy Moffat, who not only stole forty thousand, shot him, shot him four like four times <laughs> yeah. and hit once, and he wants her back. It seems that oftentimes in these types of movies, your hero, the private eye, he's got a scumbag partner. Yes, why? Why? Like choose better. <laughs> why, you know? why do, yeah, you, are you beholden to this person in some way? Jack is a scumbag. We find that out over and over. This guy's sleazy. Wit doesn't really know what Jack's doing there. And, and Robert Mitchum's just doing Robert Mitchum things. Yeah. I read this note about Robert Mitchum. And on scripts, he would write this thing next to certain lines called N-A-R. 
which meant no acting required that he was just basically supposed to deliver the line like a Robert Mitchum line. <laughs> I love it. No, because Robert Mitchum, he also, there's a quote, I think I might have this spot on. He said, I've got three looks. I look to the left, I look to the right, and I look forward. Yeah, I'm going to get a website called The Quotable Robert Mitchum. <laughs> just, it's great. There was a whole thing in school, I remember. Robert Mitchum is, he was not a theater guy. Robert Mitchum could only exist in the cinematic world. He's a cinematic star. And meanwhile, Kirk Douglas is across the desk. Just terrifying. He's so terrifying in this movie. It's because he's so, he's trying to be affable. He's and trying. he's trying to be really, hey, I'm a good guy. Yeah. Smiley, smiley. Hi. Hey, buddy. Yeah. It's unnerving. It's like, it would be like in a science fiction movie. He'd be like the alien that's in disguise that doesn't know how to act like a proper human. <laughs> That's what Kirk Douglas says. When he's trying to be nice, you go, oh boy, this is not nice. So they take that gig, and they're going to track down Kathy Moffat. The first thing is they head to a jazz club to talk to her former maid. They. There's no they. Oh, I'm sorry. Jack is kicked to the curb, but yes. he wants, and this is important, Jack wants, he's like, we're still in it. I'm, 50, not, 50. I'm not going. I get 50-50. And basically the maid alludes to the fact that more than likely, she's down in Mexico. Robert Mitchum... Jeff Markham, he heads down to Acapulco, Mexico. Is that where his first stop? Or? Yeah, well, he, there's that great line. He's like, oh, you're in Acapulco and you wonder how hot it can get. Then you go to this place and you find out. These <laughs> constant great little lines. But yeah, he wanders down there and kind of sits and drinks in places. Waiting to see her. He hears an American fitting her description is in the area. Which I love how that works. Yeah. How the hell does that work at all? <laughs> exactly. Just, I don't think he speaks Spanish. <laughs> He's Robert Mitchum. (laughs) I speak the language of the bottle. (laughs) That's all I need to know. Finally, she appears. Her appearance, she's all dressed in white. She's angelic. This is Jeff Markham recollecting how he met her. And she, at this point... It's a fantastic outfit. It is. Like, the hat is... She's she's beautiful. She's lovely. Oh. I mean, I don't know that she could get me to go kill people, but, but, I mean, I would definitely take note. And she walks into this bar that he's at, and he tries to strike up a discussion with her. In fact, he even buys from someone who's, who's trying to sell trinkets. He buys earrings. She says, listen, I can see that she's trying to brush him off at first because I think at that point she knows that this person was sent by Whit Sterling she says hey if you're looking for a place there's a place called Pablo's the guy will play American music for a dollar sometimes I go there so that's where Jeff ends up stooling up for a couple nights waiting for her I think she immediately she knows she's going the angle she goes maybe I can get this guy on my side I'm going to work this because I'm Kathy Moffat and she can get whatever the hell she wants. She shows up and they start beginning of a romantic relationship. They go gambling together. Eventually, they make their way down to the beach, which is very telling. I don't know what you think, but I took note when they are at Pablo. He has a shot of bourbon and she has a shot of bourbon and he drinks his bourbon. She does not. Could just be whatever. I watched that and the more I saw it, I thought she's keeping herself straight she's keeping herself together she's working an angle so they're having a good time they go to they go to the beach and they kiss and what's interesting is they have these fishing boats around them and they're all these fishing nets and it's not a mistake there are no mistakes the nets behind them he is being completely ensnared by her by this entire situation and he informs her she knows at the point she asks are you going to take me back he tells her wit didn't die 
But he doesn't answer the question if he's taking her back. And they establish this romantic relationship. And it's one of the best lines because she says that she didn't take the money. She tried to describe her story. Well, what's great is that he says, you know, oh, there's the 40 grand. And she goes, I didn't take it. And he said, who said it was taken? But then I will be Kathy. You get to play Robert Mitchell, you lucky (laughs) bastard. (laughs) Don't you believe me? Baby, I don't care. (laughs) Such true lines from a man who's enamored with a woman. He doesn't care. which <laughs> and he's in so much trouble. I know. This particular one. Just Robert Mitchum. Mitchuming it up. It's so great. She eventually invites him back to her place. And that's a big deal. I think she was totally scoping him out. I might be here. I might be here. I might be here. And then she goes, let's go back to my place. She knows I've set the hook. This guy is mine. She's kept him at bay until she really believes that she has him ensnared. And what happens the night there? It's raining. They're running for her cottage. Oh, it's such an adorable scene. They go to her place. It's, it is a downpour. They go in. They're drying off with a towel. And then he takes the towel. He throws it. The camera pans with the towel. It hits a lamp. Knocks the lamp over. The light goes out. The door blows open. And then we kind of cut to him getting up. And closing the door, it's later. Very much a sign that there was some hanky-panky going on. It couldn't show anything close to that. They had to tell you people had sex in different weird ways. And I think that wind also blew in because a storm was approaching. And by Jeff falling for Kathy, that now is bringing Whit Sterling in. Jeff had treated this professionally and just said, I found Kathy, I'm bringing her in. But now they have this storm. And we know Wit. he appears to be a fun-loving, nice guy with that fake smile. But there's a storm inside of him. Absolutely spot on. They're going to run away. That's their plan. So then you get Jeff walking around packing, whistling, happy. Happy as a clam. There's a knock at the door. And he opens the door and it's Wit and Joe. And Wit is just all smiley smile. And and he goes, you know what? I don't like surprises either. How about you close the door and we just forget about it? But that ain't happening. Kirk Douglas does a fantastic job. Kirk Douglas is terrifying. He's just, like, he terrifies me right now. The man man is dead. (laughs) Like, I am scared of that character. He is so good. And you know, like, you're just going to break your hand punching him. And Jeff is stuck because he knows that he had told Kathy to come and meet him. At the hotel, so they could run off together, and so he's oh, and there's some classic tension builders. Yes. They're banter back and yeah. forth. There's a knock at the door, and you, and you go, oh boy, what's it? And it's the shoes. <laughs> and, he, and and honestly, that shoes represent a new life for Jeff because there aren't shoes that he typically wore. Even they're like two tone wingtips. They're schmancy. <laughs> yes. They're all schmancy. They're not Robert Mitchum shoes. No. <laughs> they go to this restaurant to have a drink. And there's a woman that comes in and goes, oh, no, yeah. it's not her. It's not her. It's like classic kind of, whoa. And then he spills the drink yeah. and he's like, oh, Because when she does walk in, yeah. he's like, I'm going to spill the drink on Wit so he doesn't look that way. Yeah, everything's just going sideways. Yes. This is really going off the rails. And one of the things I love is that he's trying to quit. He's saying, hey, I couldn't find her. The trail, it ran cold. I'm going to quit. You can you can have Joe go find her. And I love, there's a line Wit has, Joe couldn't find a prayer in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a great line but it also I just begged the question like 
why do you keep Joe around? Exactly. What exactly does this guy do for you? You know what I mean? And he also says, I fire people. Nobody quits me. So Jeff is kind of jammed. He eventually gets Wit and Joe to leave. And him and Anne, there's this montage where they run off together. And they eventually make their way back to San Francisco. They And at first they're very close-knit because they don't want people to find them. And then they slowly, they feel safer and safer. And they're gambling at the track. He opens a small PI business. And then one day at the track, they bump into his ex-partner, Jack. I guess you're in love. You get swept away in all this. A lot of that just seems sort of weird. And why would he do that? I don't get it. Why so many J names? We have Jim, Jack, Jeff, Joe. Why are they all with J names? So he, But he says, Kathy, we can't see together. Jack's come across us. I'm going to beat Cheeks. I'm going to let him follow me. And so he does this round. He goes down to L.A. And then he goes back up through the Eastern Sierras. And he thinks the coast is clear. And him and Kathy meet up at a cabin. He's supposed to be a pretty good P.I. It never occurs to him. He thinks, oh, I lost Jack. Shook him. Never thinking that Jack might go, I'm not going to follow this guy who knows what he's doing. I'm going to follow the dame. So he followed the dame. And so he gets out to this cabin, and, and Kathy's there, and they're, they have this little cute thing, and all of a sudden, boom, Jack's there. He goes, I followed the dame. And of course, Jack is like, Wit is okay if she shot him. Wit's okay if you didn't find her. Wit's okay if you took 40000 Wit ain't going to be okay if he finds out you two are ganged up. So I want some monies. I want all the monies. And Kathy's saying, I didn't take 40000 I shot him, but I didn't take 40000 And Jeff is saying, you need to beat it and he punches him jack's like i was hoping you'd do that yeah. what kind of partnership did they have so, well the, exactly <laughs> this guy is not that intimidating everybody's putting the money on robert mitchell yeah. so they're fighting fighting and fighting and then bam kathy shoots jack and the cinematography is great because all the shadows around kathy when she pulls the gun and jeff's like why did you, you didn't need to kill him and she's like no 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 you wouldn't have done it you would have just beat him up and sent him on his way and jeff is there's this distortion in his views this woman just shot his ex-partner for all their issues they were partners for a while and you don't know their backstory but he chose him as a partner in a pi firm this woman just shot him not to mention the fact you could have shot me i kind (laughs) of wonder if it mattered i I honestly think knowing the movie now that it wouldn't have mattered to kathy he's dumbfounded a a little bit the dumbfounded a little bit has been pulled back little the curtain he sees what he's dealing with and then no sooner does he, like, turn around, she's out the door. Yeah, she's she, pounding sand. She's totally, she is gone. I wonder if that was what she was looking to do. Because I feel like, you know, your crappy gumshoe agency, that's not what I want. She saw this as an out. I think so. And so she bails. And, of course, he buries the body. She leaves her purse and she leaves her bank book. He opens it up and, of course, it says... $40,000. She's been lying. She's been lying. She took the money. (laughs) She shot Wit and she took $40,000. The idea that she couldn't spend that with Jeff because she would end up admitting that I took the money. So she was in this little box. This was her out. Imagine having the solution to all your problems monetarily sitting there, but you can't use it. So you got Jeff with his agency that's kind of crappy. 
you're like, really? I'm just going to nickel and dime my way through life when I've got the millions? Which $40,000 in 1947 was a big deal. That ends Jeff's narration. And that was quintessential film noir where he's narrating this flashback. And now we're back in the present and they have made their route up to Tahoe. And Anne is dropping him off in front of the gates. And I got to tell you, it's such a questionable thing having Anne take him there because you're just getting her close to some really, really dangerous people. There's a risk of exposure. I always find a little problematic because he does care for her. He does. He really does. He loves He loves Anne. He cares for her. Well, Michael, that's my question. Does he really love Anne or does he love the life that she could represent? Let's have a more little Imperial IPA. The from- Hopsmith. Imperial IPA from Potosi. And it has a nice picture of hops. It's hops over an anvil. And then there's also a sledgehammer and some fire. Because Hop Smith. There you go. The color, it's almost like honey. And like you said, the 9.1, I'm feeling it. And I'm just finishing one can. Yeah, I actually dug into my second. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't get to your second one, well, I'll leave it for you. It's so cool that went out to Iowa that you got to visit this place. That you Uh, got to go back to it. You know, I hope someday you can make that pilgrimage that I can take you to where, because you're from here. You've shown me lots of things. It would be great. Someday it would be so fun to do a beer and bee movies yeah. from the Midwest. This is a short drive from where I grew up. You just bounce across the river. It's really pretty. We could stop, get some cheese curds. You know what I mean? <laughs> check out the pictures on our Instagram because it is, oh. it's beautiful. And, and check out this brewery. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, if you, if you have anybody in that area, it's regionally distributed. I don't know how far they get. You can get it in Iowa. If you know somebody that can get you some, it's good. It's it's supporting a, a small place that's just doing a, a really a lot of fun. I mean, I went there. I If you look, you're, you're going to see a big bowl of cheese curds. I bought fried cheese curds there. That trip, just over a week, and I had fried cheese curds four times. That's what you're supposed to do on vacation. Was, oh, my God. It was, I just, I was like, oh, dear. Everything I've done good in the last year has just been wiped out by seven days of, of debauchery with beer. And I mean, the head on this, look at it. It's like a it's pillow. Great. It's like yeah. a huge cumulus clouds. Every time I can get something that we can't get here, because we are in Southern California. And this is a perfect one pint can. Yeah. Which is so interesting because I'm so used to seeing the, the craft brewers out here using these uh the 19 yeah the 19 yeah. and this is like a like a one pint can well it's it's probably a good good idea because oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, a 19 too a 19 too i'm like i don't know if i'd trust myself to bicycle <laughs> exactly. after this so we've ended the flashback we've ended the first half of the movie she's dropping him off what do you think about that scene michael where he's walking up to the gate to Whit sterling's tahoe mansion it's no mistake he walks up, he opens the gates, and then he closes himself, closes the gates behind him. Again, like the fishing nets, ensnaring himself. He's trapping himself. He's putting himself in harm's way. I completely agree because from this point on, Jeff makes several references where he's like, I, I'm in a frame. <laughs> I know I'm in a frame. And yet, and this is what depresses me about is when you step back and we try to do takeaways from movies. You look at life in general. Because that's why we watch stories. We watch movies. Because we don't get to experience everything in our short span of life here. And he's choosing this fatalistic outcome. 
He's like, I'm going to step into this world. I know I'm going to be framed. I know there's no end but this bad ending. And yet I'm going to choose that anyways. And it really saddens me. Film noir is not about happy endings. So he gets there. Just can't stress enough. Kirk Douglas. So menacing. He's like, that plastic smile, oh, that perfect hair, and the he the would have suit. made a great Joker. Yes, he would have made a great Joker for Batman. He's like, hey, buddy. If hey, buddy can ever feel like, hey, I'm gonna kill you now. That's it. He's like cigarette, and Rob Rich is like smoking. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I'm really smoking. Yeah, this movie. I'm surprised he didn't take one anyway. <laughs> uh, might as well. Got two hands. He's got a situation. He's got a tax guy who's blackmailing me. He did my taxes. He kind of helped me out, cheating the government. Now he's blackmailing me. Jeff says, you know, what do you want from me? I want you to go get the get the stuff back. Hey, how about breakfast? We're going to sit down and have some breakfast. W- who joins him? Kathy joins him. And Jeff is startled by her appearance. But says, you know, it's great you're both back in the fold. He's basically saying, like, Jeff, you have... No choice in this. Like, you work for me again. You're going to resolve this. It's nothing that Jeff can turn down. The way Wit is looking at the two of them, you go, oh, he knows. Says, I understand women find you charming. You know San Francisco, don't you? Throwing and, these things out there. Because Kathy reveals later on that she told Wit everything. She, she admits yeah. that she told him about those two. Yeah. She didn't say about Jack. And Jeff doesn't know. It's such an uncomfortable situation. And Jeff feels trapped, and he ends up starting writing a letter to Anne about exactly what's going on. Kathy comes in. He says, you know, you're like a leaf that floats from one gut. I mean, it's just horrible. Like, one gutter to another. Get out. I have to sleep in this room. Exactly. She's so awful that she get out. I have to sleep here. I love that one. (laughs) In that moment, he sees her for what she is. Yes. And she's laying it on about... Oh, I'm just trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to do this. And you're just going, boy, you're trouble. She's doing the right thing for Kathy. And so... Gotta go to San Francisco. And meet up with this person named Meta. This is a part of the movie where it's almost a repetition of the first part. And yet this time, Jeff knows that he's in a frame. That he's being set up. And he knows it. And you have people repeating the same pattern. Meta is basically the assistant to, is it Leonard Ills, Leonard Ills who Ills. is this tax advisor. So Meta, being somebody who, the idea of the Meta is yeah. a film about a film. So a story about a story. And then Eels, yeah. Eel, slimy. Know, think of the guy, and this guy is, he's blackmailing Wit, Wit, which he must not know Wit. Because I would, I would not blackmail this man for two hundred thousand dollars, and I'm thinking also like, what must make a lot of money? Why don't you just pay the guy? I mean, this is an overcomplicated plot. Where the first watching, Michael, I had a difficult time because of people looking similar and who was blackmailing who. It took me the second or third time. I was like, okay, because the basic <laughs> plot is Leonard Eels has in his safe or whatever number one. All the papers indicating that Sterling has committed tax fraud. And number two, he has an affidavit saying that Jeff Markham killed his partner yeah. that was written by Kathy. What Sterling wants is Sterling wants him to get the tax papers, but leave that affidavit and make it appear that Jeff killed Ills. And 
there's all this setup to get that point. And Jeff realized, he keeps saying, like, I'm in a frame. He like, says it to his cabbie buddy. Yeah. Because he's back in the city, so he finds a cabbie that was a guy he used to work with. And, and the guy says, hey, you look like you're in trouble. Yeah. He's like, oh, how do you think that? He's like, because you don't look like you're in trouble. So it's like you look calm, so you must be in trouble. And, and he says, all I see is the frame. And so there's a lot of back and forth between locations from Fulton Plays, from Maida's apartment. He meets Meta. She sets up this thing. Yeah. You meet Eels. And he completely torpedoes the whole plan because he tells Eels, hey, I'm here for this. I'm here and you're going to get killed. What I love is he's like, I think I'm the patsy. He's like, you're the mark. I'm the patsy. I'm here to leave my fingerprints, fingerprints on these glasses. And you know what he does? He ends up leaving his fingerprints all over shit. He's like, why don't I throw those glasses <laughs> like, over the over the awning or something? He's like, and, and when he comes back and finds him, he's just touching everything. He doesn't wipe anything down. Meta is just like honked off about this. Yes. That, that's a bad deal. Because Meta was, she's siding with Sterling. I'll throw my boss, who likes me a lot, Underneath the bus, if I could get some no doubt moolah, Jeff realized always this. a bad deal. I know. I, I mean, you, it's like you got a good paying job for a guy who's it, crooked, and you're going to help kill him. Yeah, it's not going to work out. This is this is always going to be bad. Yeah. Just stay away from people like Wit Sterling. So Joe, the hench who always wears dark clothing, ends up killing Eels. Jeff finds the body and assumes this is part of the frame, so he hides the body. And then he goes and he takes the papers from Sterling's club owner, who's a lot like Sterling, except he has dark hair. And this is where all these doubles take place, where the first watch is really different. Like, who is this guy? Why is he doing this? He slugs the guy. I love that. Yeah, he's he's like, bam. (laughs) And at a point, they pick up Jeff. And he reveals, listen, I know it wasn't a frame, but here's what I've done. You're never going to find that body. You're never going to find those papers. I want that affidavit. That's all he wants. I want that, and I'll give you everything. You assume that they're going to side with him, and you think Kathy is really on his side, but then Kathy calls Wit. She doesn't reveal everything. She says, like, there's just a problem. But they put out a dragnet for poor Jeff. That's my understanding. At that point, they pulled Jeff in, and Joe's there, and I think Sterling's club owner wants to beat Jeff up, and Jeff's like, listen, I'm not going to put up with being pummeled again. Joe, tell him. That if he hits me again, that's going to be the end of it. And Joe's, yeah, like, you can't take this guy. Yeah. <laughs> He's Robert Mitchum, dude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he tells him, I just want the affidavit. You'll get the papers and the body. And he tosses a cigarette on the floor. I love it. You people, are, you don't matter. You're awful people. You're trash. I'm just going to litter on your floor. Kathy calls the police on him. They're going over to Eels. Meta is going to go in and get the affidavit. But the cops are there, so they bail. It's overly complicated. I think Kathy might have called the cops. I think she did. Because at this point, we're building towards she is going to do wit in. She is the Black Widow who is weaving this whole tapestry. Jeff knows he's in it, and he's trying to climb his way out. Joe and Wit are in that tapestry. They don't know what she's doing. Yeah. I think she honestly called the police. She's yeah. trying to play both sides to see like how things are going to... She's totally playing the angle. Measure up. Oh, it's yeah. incredible. So they have to tell Wit he's not happy. And then back in Bridgeport, the, Jeff's all over the, the front, front page. The front page of the newspaper. This is going back. But I did find this thing a little odd. When Jeff went to pick up Anne, he wouldn't go to the front door. He would just go to the gate. Her, her parents said, he doesn't come to the door. What's up with that? And personally... I find that a little odd, too. 
And then Bridgeport is suddenly they're in lynching mode. Yes, <laughs> I mean they really are. They're all like gathered. They're like, who are all Jeff, those all those this people? Jeff Bella, we gotta get him. And it's like, dude, he committed a murder in San Francisco. He might be heading back yeah. here. It just is really weirdly over the top. Jim knows where Anne's going to be, and he goes out and he reveals himself, saying, "I love you." He's been pining for Anne yeah. since they were little. So I think he said, "Since I fixed her roller skates." Yeah. This guy, Jeff, he's been no good. And they're going to find him and they're going to kill him. And Anne, is just, she's just kind of minding her own business yeah. next to a stream. He wasn't going out there to be like a shoulder to cry on. He was kind of going out there to sort of, almost I told you so. And then Kathy is doing something that <laughs> Sterling doesn't know about. She sends Joe to follow the kid who she believes the kid will lead them towards Jeff. Because they brought the kid in. And then she tells Joe, follow him, basically. And, and he'll lead you right to where Bailey's at. And where, go get him. And this is where Kathy, it's almost like she's, I'm going to take over Wit's yeah. organization. She's telling Joe what to do. And by going out and killing Jeff, you are putting Wit in a bad situation. Exactly. Because all the tax stuff will never be found. So Joe goes along with this. That's problematic. It is. I think Joe's ensnared by her as well. Sees the winner. He's basically weighing his choices. So he follows the kid. The kid's out there fly fishing, and he sees Joe. I mean, Joe's trying to pull out the gun because all of a sudden Joe's realized, like, Jeff is hidden out there. In a trench coat. In a trench coat because that's what you do when you're camping. Like camping. I'm no ballistics expert, but I know handguns, like a revolver, is not a long-distance shooting deal. So he's up on this cliff, going to shoot Jeff from a long ways. And the kid who's fly fishing flings his snare up, his fishing rod up, catches Joe and pulls him down. Joe falls down. He dies. Jeff just involved the kid in murder. The kid just murdered this guy. (laughs) I know the kid is probably enamored with Jeff because Jeff treats him like an equal. He doesn't treat him someone who has a disability. But the kid just killed someone. And I wouldn't be surprised if Jeff set it up with him. Joe was a villain, but I like Joe. And he dies a, not what you consider a warrior's death. He dies falling off a side of a small waterfall. <laughs> I love that, that you're, you're and, taking up for Joe. What an awful way to die because he put his trust in Kathy. The femme fatale <laughs> is not asking you to yeah. do good deeds. <laughs> so where does Jeff go back now? Well, he's, he's got to go back to Lake Tahoe. And this is when Wick, the jovial nature that he's had is gone. He's burning some papers. He's not happy. Jeff points out, here's the scoop of things. Kathy let Joe die. There's only one thing that's going to play out if you want your papers. You throw Kathy under the bus. You say that she killed my partner, Jack. He goes, I'll, I'll be out of your hands. He throws it all out there and makes it clear, yeah. though, that Kathy was going to send you up the river. Wit looks over at Kathy. You just see the realization that you were going to kill Jeff, which would have basically killed me. Meanwhile, Mitchum is being Mitchum, yeah. just smoking, yeah. being cool. And and he's like, I'm going to let you guys talk about this. <laughs> it's just great. And Wit goes up to Kathy and very intensely says, you're either going to take the rap, rap of this or you're going to live a horrible, tortured experience before I kill you. Jason, it is a truly unsettling yes. exchange, though. Yeah. Where, where he just tells her, this is what's... You're going to wake up every day thinking this might be the day that you get killed. And when it happens, 
it ain't going to be pretty no. and it ain't going to be slow. It is so terrifying. Jeff, he just bounces right back to Bridgeport to yeah. see Anne, and he's being followed by Jim. Jim admits that I loved her my whole life. I was going to come out here and kill you, but it's not in me. But you are not good for her. Basically, I might not be what she wants, but you are definitely not one. Exactly. And that's why I don't think Anne, no matter what the ending says, I don't think Anne I mean, lives a life I think you might be right. Jeff, he gets in the car. He goes, you know, he could have killed me. could spend the rest of your life telling her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, just telling him off. Dude, I'm sorry. I'm Robert Mitchum. You're not. Yeah. Essentially yeah. what Jeff tells Jim. But, I mean, Jim is a nice guy and he's a good guy and all. But He's your solid citizen in Bridgeport that you'd marry and you'd open up a cafe. Good government job. Exactly. You'd have a government job and you'd be in the cafe your whole time talking to people who pass through about their experiences living outside of Bridgeport and always thinking that could have been me. Wow, no wonder you were depressed. That was, I was, that was really, like, oh my God. So and, what happens? And, what happens to and Jeff? Then, and then across the street is Robert Mitchum. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've, I've seen the world, baby. <laughs> and so after Jeff's foray back to Bridgeport to talk to Ed, he goes back to Tahoe. What happens, Michael? Well, he gets back and Wit's dead. He's just laying there. Is that a surprise? <laughs> I don't know what what Wit was thinking. I mean, seriously, dude. It's like somebody going, hey, that snake handler got bit by a snake. And you go, well, that's not surprising. Everything about this woman is trouble. She comes out, and and all of a sudden, her her outfit looks like a nun. Has gone from that angelic, white, pure, to where it's now at the end of the movie, she's in dark. She's covered up pretty much head to toe in this. But the hair covering, it reminds me... I was raised Catholic, so it looks like a nun. But she just basically tells Jeff, you're no good, I'm no good, and I've got you, got you by the tail. I've got the affidavit. You're just going to do what I'm in charge. And he just kind of sees this is how it is for Jeff. She goes upstairs. He goes to the phone, calls the cops. We don't know exactly what he says. I I think he just said, hey, you know, by the way, the people you're looking for, they're going to be driving down this road at this time. And it's really kind of sad because Jeff is not a bad guy. I think he made a decision to be with those bad people. The idea of the femme fatale is like they can seduce you, get you to do things you wouldn't normally do. But he did. He had the free will. It's kind of a bummer. It is. But it's fantastic because they do get in the car and he does the old slow start like and she kind of looks over she's like whatever dude because he's driving to his death he's giving the cops time he's buying time so the police can set up a barricade so they're cruising down the road there's a barricade and her, her initial reaction is yeah you rat yeah like she called him a rat shoots him in the gut i mean he's dead and she's trying to shoot the cops oh. and they're just shoot up the car it's awesome and they crash and they open up the door and he falls out. He's dead. She's dead. It's just a tragic. And the news reaches Bridgeport. Real fast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and everybody's walking out of the, the courthouse, that historic courthouse in Bridgeport. Jim offers, hey, Ann, you could be with me. And I, and I like this small town. This is for me, you know. Ann sees the kid across the way still working at the gasoline station. You know, we disagree on this point, but at that point... She had to know that Jeff, I feel that people knew Jeff called in this police barricade. But she still wants affirmation from the kid who's probably the closest person besides these two women to him 
about what Jeff's intention was. Was he intending to drive off with Kathy? And his response is, yeah. I think the kid really feels for him and wants her to move on. Or I think Jeff told him, like, I need, whatever happens to me, Anne needs to move on with her life. My thought is, Jeff told him, things are not going to probably end well for me. If they don't, tell her I was leaving with that woman. It would be easier for Anne to move on with her life than if she thought, oh, Jeff died. He was going to come back to me. He always wanted to be with me. That would be devastating. Even though his exchange with Jim, they weren't buddies. And he knew, you know what? That's probably a better fit for Anne because crap just follows me. She walks off with Jim. Kid kind of salutes the the Bailey sign. The Jeff Bailey sign saying, hey, I did you a solid at the end. And then he turns around and it's the ending credits. And he's walking towards a pile of old tires and there's (laughs) desiccated trees with no leaves in the background. The beginning started with this majestic mountain view. It ends with this very sad, sad, depressing view. Yeah. Ugliness. The fact that you keep saying that this movie depressed you. It depressed me. It makes me so sad. No, it does. I, I mean, it's about a man who realizes I am being framed. Instead of saying, okay, how can I get out of the circumstances I'm in? I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to remain in this situation and maybe I could try to figure my way out. But in reality, I don't. Th- I think there's only one way out of it. I'm going to die for this. I would take point with a couple things simply because he was trying. He was like figuring out. He had the tax stuff. Yeah. That was an easy out. But then he didn't realize... Or he did realize, and he just couldn't do anything about it, Kathy Moffat. Basically, this movie could be called Kathy Moffat Happened. Like, Wit was like, eh, I'm going to, I'm with you. Okay, here we go. We're going to do this. And Kathy was like, oh, contraire, I'm going to kill you. He was like, I'm willing to make the ultimate sacrifice because I do know Anne and I ain't going to happen. This is the hand they dealt me. He's saying, I have no choice in life. My fate is has dealt me this hand, and that's all I can follow through with. When he pulled up to Wit's gate at the very beginning, he could have easily, instead of unlocking the gate, turned around and said, like, Anne, if you love me, let's just drive. Or at the end, when he had already left and gone back to Anne, knowing that Kathy still had the affidavit, but he still had those papers about Wit, he could have said, I'm not going to go back to Kathy. Anne, just leave with me at this point in time. We'll find another place. But I would say this. What he might have realized was, they found me in Bridgeport, California. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to find me in Manchester, Iowa. You know, he might have just realized, I can't keep running. But that's a fatalistic point of view. Like, no matter what I do. It kind of is. But again, I will say, (laughs) they found me in Bridgeport, (laughs) California. Which I looked it up. Not a big place. It's it's kind of nowheresville. First of all, like I would not have set up shop in a place close to Tahoe. I would have chosen a different. Exactly. I might have chosen a different. But at the same time, I didn't know Bridgeport was real except for this movie. Never would have went there. The three ninety five going up through Lone Pine. Bishop, Mono Lake, all the way to Bridgeport this is, is a beautiful drive. Honestly, thank you for sharing this movie. It's a fantastic movie. It's so fun. The Hopsmith. Oh, yeah. Imperial IPA. You enjoying it? A- absolutely. I'm, I love this beer. It's so fantastic. I like that it comes in one pint cans. 
You can buy it in four packs, and, 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 and it's all—it's always such a fun. It's always such a fun treat to go back home to the Midwest, and you find that your dollar goes a lot farther in the Midwest than it does in the Los Angeles area. Now, have you ever seen the remake of this with Jeff Bridges and Rachel Ward um, against all odds? And James in Woods. Yeah, James Woods. He yes. played uh, Whit Sterling's role. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I saw that in the 80s. We're going back a long time. And I never knew it was like an actual remake of this. It makes me want to go back and Janet watch it. Greer and the actor who played Joe um, play roles in that. Paul movie. Valentine. Yeah. He's great. I need to watch it now. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. No, no. The, the, take a look at me. That's, a, <laughs> that's the Phil Collins. Phil Collins owned the '80s. I recommend this movie. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I don't just recommend this movie. You really, really owe it to yourself to watch this. It's fantastic. Everything about this movie is fantastic. Agreed. This is a movie that, if you're a film fan, regardless of genre, you need to see this movie. It's up there on our list with The Hitchhiker. This is such a cinematic treat. The acting. Every point when you look at a movie, from how it's shot, Dallas acted, it's all a, an 11 on a scale. The main villain is Kathy, and she's awesome. <laughs> I mean, she is one of the most stone-cold terrifying i don't know if i mentioned this earlier when you talk about film fatales the gold standard is barbara stanwick in double indemnity but jane greer is right there in my opinion and i have to quote roger ebert he said most crime movies begin the present and move forward but film noir coils back into the past the noir hero is doomed before the story begins by fate rotten luck or his own flawed character Crime movies sometimes show good men who go bad. The Naruto is never good, just kidding himself, living in ignorance of his dark side until events demonstrate it to him. In capsules. Yeah, I can't pronounce it now because of too much of this Potosi Imperial Stout. The, the, the Hobsmith. The Hobsmith got to you. They just dropped a little yeah, hammer. I think dropped that, a little hammer on your head. Exactly. That summarizes Jeff's character. I think that wraps the show up. Absolutely. Please subscribe, like, and comment on the episode wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And check out our website. This is Beer and Bee Movies. I'm Jason. And I'm Michael.